Hey guys, and welcome to the Family Business Indaba podcast. We are the voice of African family business, promoting generational wealth and generational legacies. And my name is Susan Tendi. And I am Nika Amani. And we're going to be taking you through the journey of African family business. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, it is my absolute privilege and uh, joy to welcome our two next keynote speakers. And um, let me start. It, the CVs are too long, and you can find that on the profiles uh, on the website. But they've also become very good friends. And Alan and I, um, you know, we're working together on family businesses for a long time uh, together. And Cray, you have joined us, but you're also becoming quite an expert yourself. So it's really my privilege to introduce you. Let me just get the, the titles correct. Mr. Alan Barr is the head of KPMG Private Enterprise in Africa. And uh, Mr. Craig Sudding is Associate Director of the KPMG Private Enterprise. So guys, thank you very much for joining us. I know you're both very, very busy. And uh, it's always a delight to listen to you. Um, I've, um, I had some, I read the report and I had some insights into um, the research that's being done. So um, I'll join you on the pa- panel together with Tom McGuinness um, later this afternoon. But if I can hand over to you um, to start the discussion and the presentation and um, if, if I can ask the audience to post any questions on the chat box. And uh, if there's still time, then we will address the questions. Otherwise, we will address it in the next section uh, or session when we're going to have a panel discussion. So, Ellen and Craig, good luck and forward to you. Thanks very much, uh, Professor Fenter, and thanks for the introduction. I'm just going to share my my screen. Um, we can uh, going. So good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for this opportunity to share uh, some insights from our global report uh, entitled Mastering a Comeback. Um, I think everyone is very well aware that family businesses have probably mastered the art of resilience, agility, and adaptability whenever they are faced by challenges. And with that in mind, and uh, for insights of family businesses, the Step Project Global Consortium and KPMG Private Enterprise went out to seek insights and lessons learned by family business leaders on how they guided their businesses through the COVID-19 pandemic and the uncertainties that uh, unveiled. And we asked three key questions. And, and the first one was, how did COVID-19 impact the business as well as the family, number one? Number two was, What actions did they take to preserve, adapt, and possibly even grow their business during the pandemic period? And lastly, is agility and resilience still an advantage of family businesses? And together, Cray and I are going to take you through some of the insights on this global report. Uh, But to start off, I'm going to play a short video of about four minutes. Just just going to summarize some of the key aspects and the key findings Uh, from this research. Family businesses come in all shapes and sizes. They produce more than 75% of GDP in most countries worldwide. 
and employed more than 75% of their global workforce. The qualities that unite them, deep-rooted purpose, values, and resilience. In collaboration with the Step Project Global Consortium, KPMG Private Enterprise surveyed 3,010 business leaders in companies of all sizes in 75 countries, representing multiple family generations and industries. Global Family Business Report, COVID-19 edition, shines a light on the strategies family businesses adopted to master a comeback and triumph in leading the global recovery. What was the impact and how did they respond? The immediate shock was on revenues and supply chain disruptions, and they took quick action. Then their resilience kicked in as attention turned to the long term. To help us learn from their experiences and share their insights, we've developed personas of four family business types. These bring to life three core strategies that we identified are adopted in different combinations as business families prepared for a comeback. Social responsibility, business transformation, and exercising patience. The family's values were front and center, and many family businesses made it their priority to support all of their stakeholders. They made every effort to take care of employees, supported community relief programs, and made sure they protected even their smallest suppliers. As they looked at how to transform their business, the first response was reactive to address the impact of COVID-19 on business operations. With their long-term outlook and agility, attention then turned to a proactive, quick pivot with the adoption of new technology, entering new markets and developing new products. The need to pivot paved the way for next generation voices to be heard, to accelerate their firm's digitization efforts, reinforce the importance of ESG as a value driver, and re-energizing the family's entrepreneurial roots across the generations. With their patient capital, families were able to defer immediate actions in some areas, while looking for opportunities to make operational improvements or take their business in new directions. A combination of all three strategies were adopted at different points in time and also reflected the characteristics of the family, such as the structure, liquidity, level of family involvement and skills. Through the four personas in the report, we can delve deeper into what these strategies meant in practice for businesses, whether they are led by a family or non-family CEO, and whether the shares are owned by a few family members or many across several generations. Balancing the immediate and long-term impacts of the pandemic, family businesses have proved extraordinary ability to act and adapt quickly. We reset and we move forwards together. What does your long-term future family business strategy look like? Together, we can continue to turn new thinking into triumph, optimizing businesses and strengthening family dynamics that are fit for the future. There are lessons to be learned from all of these experiences. Now is the time for every family business to evaluate their own actions and implement the changes necessary to keep family businesses moving forward 
as the engine of the global economy. So the survey gave us some great insights and it's the largest survey we've done as KPMG Private Enterprise with over 3,000 participants ranging from mainly family business, but also got some insights from uh, non-family businesses. It also got insights from different generations ranging from the first, which was about 42%, all the way to those family businesses that were multiple generations in their business. It also looked at different sizes uh, feedback from businesses from different sizes, some ranging from those with over 200 employees to also the smaller entities of 20 or less. And also, like we said, it was across 75 countries with about 16% in the Middle East and Africa. I would like to say at this stage that you know, at the same time, this was run almost a year ago between June and October of 2020. Um, we also ran the African Family Business Barometer at the same time, and we'll share some interesting insights and correlations between this report and uh, what we saw on the barometer. I think one of the key survey highlights was the fact of uh, employment, right? Where 8.6% of family business or reduction, whereas more than 10% of non-family business or reduction. Europe saw the lowest reduction of about 4%, whereas the Middle East and Africa saw uh, a reduction of up to 20% in some cases. And there's various reasons Behind this, one would be the availability of talent. Uh, certainly in, in Europe, it's been like that for a long time, but also the stimulus packages that the Europeans uh, were able to receive compared to what we saw in Africa and the Middle East. And then some of the key um, other highlights were that you know 41% cut costs or deferred investments, around about 36% you know, reduced employee numbers, uh, work hours, and even pay. We saw 9% reduced salary packages and incentive plans. And these are some of the key highlights. I'm now going to hand over to Craig, citing my colleague, who's going to take us a bit more deeper into the, into the, the, the study. Over to you, Craig. Thanks, Alan. Um, next slide, please, Alan. Yeah, there we go. So, yeah, thanks, everyone, for joining us. And, yeah, um, as Alan said, I'm going to dig a little bit deeper into some of the statistics that came out of it. So, Alan mentioned survey was conducted during the early months of the pandemic. And although relatively obvious, the first indicator of the impact of the pandemic being the the impact on the revenue levels. And I think what's quite important here is to see that we've seen a decrease across all the regions. But if we focus in on Middle East and Africa, as Alan mentioned, and bring in our Africa Family Business Barometer, which we work with Profit and her team at Nelson Mandela University on, we've got to bring a little bit of context into the the Africa picture at least, where from the study that we did at a very similar time, pre-COVID, the results from that survey, 70% of family businesses in Africa actually experienced growth during the back end of 2019, with also 82% increasing their staff numbers, and 30% had increased their activities abroad. So just to give a bit of context, yes, in Africa and the Middle East, we saw an 84% reduction in revenues. But I think bringing in the context of what had happened pre-COVID, it just maybe just softens that number a little bit more. 
The next step that we've also got to look at is our Africa Family Business Barometer also looked to what what was the immediate impact of of COVID and only 19% of respondents had indicated that they had experienced a significant decrease in revenue. So that just, again, just brings in a bit of a softening to the 84% that the global survey indicates. It's still not a great picture um, because that 84% is is a backwards um, in terms of what growth was experienced in 2019. So, Alan, if we can just go on to the next slide, please, and just look at the actual dig a little bit deeper into those revenue numbers and which sectors were impacted. Um, I'm going to take a slightly more positive approach to this presentation and not focus too much on the negative side of things and rather focus on the the positive side of it. And again, the revenue declines, the sectors there are are pretty, I think we we would all expect that to be. When we look at the revenue increase side, the winners from the situation Obviously, we've got to look at COVID and the pandemic enhanced the acceleration of technology and the digitization and the surge in e-commerce. So the immediate expected increase is in the information communications technology industry where the the survey highlighted a 13% increase in those sectors and revenues. Then the next relatively obvious um, increase is in the human health sector, I mean, everyone's needed um, to needed the support in terms of health to get through the impact of COVID to prevent it. Vaccinations, where they've seen a 21% increase in revenues. And then, obviously, we've all been spending a lot more time at home, people working from home, homeschooling. And then that brings with it the preparation of family meals being prepared at home, less going out to restaurants, which is obviously the negative impact of it. And all of this has brought an increase in the agriculture and fruit processing industries where we're seeing about an 11% increase in revenue. So all in all, yes, the negative side, we can talk about that for a long time. But on the positive side, we do have those increases. And then just briefly to touch on the selected arts, entertainment, and recreation companies. I mean, there you've got all the online entertainment and I mean, the Netflix is the showmaxes of the world. And then also the online gaming, which... Previously, I think as a parent, a lot of us think we we want our our children not to be spending too much time. But the social impact of online gaming, given the impact of COVID on the lack of being able to socialize, has actually been positive. So there are those other um, statistics that are starting to emerge from a social perspective. Ellen, next slide, please. So as the video and Ellen said, we had this initial... What was the impact of COVID? Primarily the impact on revenues. And what was the reaction from that? And the survey identified four areas where the the, the primary reaction areas were focused on the employee front, on the costs and investments, on the business front, and then also on your executives. So the pandemic brought about this or promoted a what-if scenario discussion that had to be done and demanded the critical review, I suppose, of all the downside and upside scenarios for the future of many family businesses. And in some instances, family businesses, as Alan also mentioned, actually expanded, not immediately, but as we move, as the the, um, pandemic has continued, and actually moved their business from what the family business is known for to other areas of business 
And it's mainly because of their ability and the social capital that they can collaborate and work with the external um, stakeholders and they've also got the financial capital to do um, make these changes. But let's go back to what the initial reaction was. So Alan, if you don't mind going to the next slide and just dig a little bit deeper into those four categories. So here, as you can see, across those four categories, in each region, there were different focus areas in terms of how, how the impact was going to have um, the reaction that family businesses had. But if we look at family and non-family businesses alike, they had to act quickly to protect their companies from the sudden drop in, in revenues and the supply chain disruptions. So non-essential costs would, were cut during the early and the high, highly unpredictable months of the pandemic with employment reductions necessary, unfortunately, in many cases. Although some had business continuity plans in place, what we found is that many family businesses found themselves unprepared. Those who did have plans in place had a very good starting point for tackling this unexpected situation that, that, that hits us. Um, they had already documented how they would interact with each other during the crisis and how they triggered the communities and worked with the committees that were designed to deal with um, suppliers and customers. And it's these kind of, this long-term characteristic of the family businesses which came to the fore and demonstrated once again the distinguishing factor between family businesses and non-family businesses. And it came through in terms of these areas. So on the employee front, we do see the employees moving to remote status, um, unfortunately freezing hires, and unfortunately in Africa and Middle East, as we've seen, reducing employee pay and actually reducing employee numbers. Alan did mention that it was 4% in Europe versus 20% in, in, in Africa and the Middle East, which obviously tells us something that what is it about the different regions that, that has given rise to this significant uh, difference? Alan did touch on the potential um, support programs that the government's provided, but we also need to look at, well, what are the, the are there different labour labor law protections in, in other countries in Africa versus Europe. So one needs to dig a little bit deeper to actually see. If I can bring back our Africa Family Business Barometer in, I just want to reiterate again that pre-COVID towards the back end of 2019, there was an 82% increase in the employee numbers. So again, I don't want to remove totally the impact and what people have to do, but just to soften it and just bring it, bring a little bit more context to, to the numbers we are seeing here, especially that 20%. I know a lot of people do, do struggle with it. Then if we look at the costs and investments, what is a positive to me here is that across the board, it's just cu cutting office expenses, which also makes sense because less people are spending time in office. So you can cut down on a lot of those, um, those, those expenses. Some of them you can't. For example, your rental costs. However, some of the commercial property owners did um, also come to the party and they gave some rental deferrals, rental holidays, not giving it for free, but they also have this long-term vision in working with the businesses, understanding that when you do get back to some form of normality in terms of people going back to offices, that you want to create that loyalty between yourself and the lessee or the family business. For me, what's more important is that there wasn't much cutback on the investment spend because a lot of family businesses with that long-term view actually saw the opportunity in the crisis where operations had slowed. So now was a good time to invest in 
your maintenance, to invest in any um, capital improvements you needed to do, maybe a packing plant, you needed a new packing plant and you wanted to bring that on board. Now was the time, well, during that slow period was the time to do it. Um, And again, talking to that longer term vision. And then the third aspect here is talking about business and your supply chains and how you work with your suppliers and customers. And here, what we see across the board is being able to delay payment or renegotiate vendor contracts. And what we saw through the study is there's this loyalty that family businesses build with their communities. They don't just focus on their business, they focus on the ecosystem around them. And it's through that loyalty that they were able and well positioned to have these discussions with the supply chain, their suppliers and their customers. I've got a family business where pre-COVID, whatever their payment terms were of, let's say, 30 days, they would always pay within half the time. And it was that kind of loyalty. And when they needed help, their suppliers were more than happy to give the help because they had seen this. Um, there was a reciprocation of, of, of that loyalty that, and that goodwill that they had built. And then on the executives, I don't want to spend too much time there because there was a lot to put in the press on that. I think the only interesting fact was it was as low as 9%. Um, because if you look, read the media coverage, it seemed like there was a lot more um, being taken in terms of um, salary cuts by executives. Alan, next slide, please. So you had the reaction, and then what did family businesses do to absorb the financial shock? I mean, we've spoken through some of them. Alan spoke to employee executive act- actions where family businesses across the board saw an 8.5% decrease in their um, employment costs, whereas non-family businesses are 10.2%. So there immediately you see the benefit of a family business and how a family business wants to look after its employees. There are the other aspects here of hiring freezes and all of those things. I'm not going to spend too much time on. The one area I do want to spend time on is, again, the cost-cutting measures. A lot of family businesses, due to their ability and agility in their decision-making processes, when they looked at their inventory levels, a lot of them were able to adapt the use of their inventory for goods and services that were necessary during the pandemic. As an example, PPE, um, clothing manufacturers were able to produce PPE, which was in short supply, home office equipment, um, so changing it from office um, equipment for the office and making it for the home, adapting it slightly, sanitizers. I mean, we saw the alcohol industry in South Africa in particular take a knock, but a lot of them used the byproduct of, 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 of their production process to create sanitizers. So it was that agility and, again, family business not being stuck in a rut and not being able to move um, quickly and swiftly. Next slide, please, Alan. So continuing with the absorbing the financial shock. Some of the statistics that came out, again, the business reactions. The one I want to focus on first here is the 26% um, of family businesses that were able to take on additional debt. And again, this comes down to Some of the characteristics that we see with family businesses in the sense that they do not like to leverage themselves too much. They don't take on too much debt when they are a successful family business. And this puts them in a very good position where if they've got minimal to very, to no debt before um, a crisis hits, they're in a very good position to go and and take on debt at very good rates. So that was very good. Um, So 26% were able to do that um, with very little um, impact on their, their 
um, business overall. And then 12%, I just want to clarify that 12% of family businesses that had to close. What I need to clarify there is it's not all of them had to close permanently. Some did, unfortunately, but there were some that just closed temporarily. Again, a family coming together, realizing that maybe it's better to close, close up shop for a short while and wait for the right time to reopen. Um, all the while, yeah, I was just trying to make sure when they do reopen, they can come back stronger than, well, at least on the same same footing as when they left off. And then, as Alan mentioned, when we're looking at the difference between um, the employment numbers of 4% in Europe and 20% in Africa and the Middle East, it comes down to potentially to accessing government support. So we've seen globally the, the government support that's been made available. And again, family businesses weren't immune to um, the pandemic, so they also had to access government support and they made full use of it with 21% looking to the government subsidies to support or supplement the salary losses. Again, that 20% in Africa and in the Middle East of, of employment cost reductions is an unfortunate because I think we all know the family business that we work with, they try and, they've tried their hardest to, to retain their employees in that regard. Adam, next slide, please. And then we look to the power of family involvement and family members throughout have always played a critical role as owners of, of the businesses to safeguard their financial, but also the emotional investment that they've made to preserve that legacy that they've built over multiple generations. And this is one of the key differentiators of a family business is how they define success. While profits and dividends are very important financial measures, Success in a family business is also defined bringing in your non-financial objectives, such as control over the business, transgenerational succession, social capital, emotional connection to the firm and this legacy or the reputation. And it's these financial or socio-emotional objectives which are important in a family, in family businesses, to have as a direct impact on their decision-making and how they measure their success. And it's this approach and, and this non-financial aspect, which also positioned family businesses very well to be resilient during the pandemic and set themselves up for the post-pandemic recovery or being the leaders in the post-pandemic. So when the leaders began to grasp, leaders of family businesses began to grasp what the pandemic may mean for the, the business, they realized that there were two aspects to it. There was you either need family, more family involvement internally in the business and or family involvement externally outside the business. And it's their, their involvement and their input and their quick decision-making, which is obviously vital and is, was needed during the pandemic to ensure that they could quickly make decisions. So for many family businesses, the unexpected yet positive outcome of the pandemic was the gift of time. With the slowdown in their business operations, several family business leaders found that they actually had time and, and the agility to now diversify, to explore ideas for new products, new markets, and extensions of their business that had actually been simmering in the background for many years. They just never had the time to focus on it. So that's where family involvement internally was quite important. But then if you look at the external involvement of the family, family members within the businesses, 
and this is again depending on the structure of the family and their involvement in the business is how they looked outside for potential collaboration opportunities with the customers, their suppliers, and other stakeholders to develop solutions together to maintain their vital relationships with their employees, their customers, suppliers, and the community while contributing to the economy and ultimately to the longer-term plans of, the, of their family business and the ecosystem that supports that family business. So, Alan, if we can go on to the next slide, please. And this led to three key strategies to enable them to prepare for their comeback. On the slide, they are numbered one, two, and three, but I just want to make it very, very clear that we've just numbered it for purposes of the slide. In terms of how family businesses took on each of these strategies and in what order, and whether even some have taken on some of these strategies, there's no ordering to it at all. So let's just start with social responsibility. This is where the family's values come to the fore and the governance practices that are in place to support their societal and environmental responsibilities to maintain their reputation as responsible owners among their employees, their customers, suppliers, and communities where they trade and operate. And again, I keep focusing on that ecosystem around, or the, the results from the report keep focusing on the ecosystem around the family business because the family business has that long-term view that it can't operate in isolation. It needs to operate with the ecosystem around it. Moving into the business transformation um, strategy, it's this concept of pivoting and the importance of encouraging a transgenerational entrepreneurship mindset, which is the focus of this strategy, which enables um, the passing on of the business successfully from the generation to generation and includes actions such as streamlining operations, implementing new financial measures, creating new products, exploring untapped markets and adopting new technology solutions to pivot the business. This is particularly where we see the next generation proactively seeking to ensure that the new business models include transformational ESG strategies and using the resources responsibly. So you can start to see now the social responsibility and the business transformation coming together and also the, very, the importance of the next generation. In terms of statistics that came out of the study, 42% of family businesses were more likely to deploy a business transformation strategy than non-family firms were, which is quite an interesting statistic, but again, does show the difference in terms of the involvement of the family and their longer-term view and also their view on um, their impact on the communities and the ecosystem around them. And then very unique to um, family businesses is this exercising of patience. And this strategy is more around what we term social, social uh, patient capital, apologies, um, where family businesses don't take immediate action to address or didn't take immediate action to address the impact of COVID. Um, they invested rather in this patient capital where they were prepared to take their time to fully assess the situation before taking long-term actions that may have far-reaching longer-term consequences. So what they did is they leveraged their patient capital to understand the full impact of COVID on their business and others in the industry, observing the immediate actions of many of the competitors. And then this gave the family business a, a competitive advantage by being able to see and seize opportunities that others in the industry did not have the foresight or resources to capture because they didn't employ this patient capital where family businesses did. 
Next slide, please, Alan. And coming back to the point I made when we started looking at these three um, strategies is that there's no particular order that one strategy was implemented over another or preferred over another. It just became quite regional. And if you look at the different regional um, strategies that each took and in terms of preference, it's, it's varied across the four regions. But in Middle Eastern Africa, the focus being very much on that patient capital and then the business transformation and then the social responsibility. So if we bring this, bring back the Africa Family Business Barometer, it aligned quite well in the sense that during the barometer, the feedback that we got was that African family businesses are well-placed for the recovery in, in, in respect of the economies, given the natural characteristics of a family business, being the patient capital, a clear sense of purpose and community and a long-term focus on the future. So that's all three of those strategies coming together. Um, what was quite, quite interesting in terms of the latest African family business barometer compared to the last, compared to the ones previously, was that African family businesses were actually looking to diversify businesses to continue growing, but in the global and African business environment, so not just within their local environment. So, Alan, just the next slide, and I think this is my last slide before I hand back over to you. So how do you make the strategic choice? And two factors came to light, leadership versus ownership composition. So for family businesses, and I'm going to reiterate where we are today, is the first response was to protect the family business and the, and the business family when COVID hit, um, hits us all first. The second step was to reevaluate and redesign their strategies in order to master this comeback that they are currently making. And the third step is to triumph as the leader in the global economic recovery. So if we look back at the past few months, there are family businesses that recognize that they didn't have sufficient contingency plans in place with a major unexpected, for such a major unexpected event, and others that realize that succession planning is becoming an urgent priority, and some of them were actually just thrown to the deep end that succession planning had to happen due to the health um, implications of COVID. And that in addition to that is to ensure that the right leadership is being prepared to pick up the reins and guide a new strategic direction successfully. And this could either be a family CEO or a non-family CEO. But now many of family businesses are seeing that the younger generation actually have the innovative ideas for the future of the business and they're examining the mechanisms that need to be in place to keep bringing the fresh, fresh ideas to the surface for the family business. And that's obviously the argument for families potential family CEO, whereas the non-family CEO brings an objective view um, and may have more experience than the next generation. And that's the constant the discussion that needs to be had and thought about. So for family businesses, what we, this survey also brought out is whether the CEO is a family or non-family executive is less important. What matters is whether or not the family has to go through a lot of evaluation to determine if their decisions to achieve the family's purpose or shared purpose, more importantly, is that the more dispersed the family ownership, the more time it takes for thorough communication and open discussions before a decision can be made um, to, 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 to achieve um, the family, um, the shared purpose. As a result, it does hamper the speedy decision-making that family businesses are genuinely known for and can be sometimes lost in the process. So these are the considerations in terms of leadership and ownership composition in terms of how the next steps need to be taken. So, Alan, I think that's where I hand back to you. Uh, thanks very much, Craig. 
And uh, if we look at the, the strategy choice, it not only depended on the ownership factor and the, and the leadership, but what we also saw through the survey, it also was impacted by the size and age of the firm, as well as the number of family generations that were engaged. And hence, the survey identified four family business personas. And we're going to go through each one of these, namely the family corporation, the family consortium, family enterprise, and the family venture. And we're going to look at how did they uh, adopt which strategy and how and, and it was impacted by these various these factors. So we take firstly the family corporation. This is generally a family business which is a non-family CEO. It's got shares which are widely dispersed and generally larger companies fall into this category uh, with more than 200 employees. And their primary strategy was this whole aspect of social responsibility. Yes, they cut costs of the executives and they took the necessary measures in terms of vendor contracts and cost-cutting measures within the business. But ultimately, it all came down to looking after the employees and being very focused and protecting the family's reputation as a responsible shareholder by using the social capital and their commitments to make sure that they are engaged in the community for the long term. So some of the key factors was this is about all about the values and sustaining the legacy. Um, like I said, they were able to make the necessary measures from a cost-cut point of view, but key was maintaining the relationship with both their suppliers and customers and ensuring a good communication strategy and flow of information for all their stakeholders, the shareholders, the customers, the employees, etc. And this was a big focus and a success of the, of the family corporations. Now, if you look at the family consortium, uh, this on the other end is led by a family CEO. Once again, shares are widely dispersed and, and a number of generations working in the business. Approximately 45% were of smaller businesses. But once again, they social responsibility was also one of their main focus areas uh, because they knew the importance of the employees, they knew the importance of the community. But in addition to that, they were able to pivot their organization and start through a business transformation far quicker than the family corporation, most likely because of the smaller size of the businesses, as well as the impact of the family in driving these changes. So key success factors, you know, is using the family's resources to sustain the legacy, taking both financial and non-financial actions to mitigate the business, active involvement, using the creativity and adaptability, and then strong leadership from senior management, especially the family CEO, underpinned by that purpose and values of what the family was known for. Very, very important in, in the success of the family consortium. Thirdly, you have the family enterprise. Now, this is a company led by a non-family CEO, but yeah, the shares are concentrated uh, amongst a small number of, of family members, generally first to second generation businesses, and once again, also on the small end. And they adopted all three strategies, being social responsibility, business transformation, and exercising patience at the same time. And what we gathered from this is that there was clearly some challenges between the management of the business by a non-family CEO and the governance by a family corporation where family business family, which had a small number of role players. And hence they had to deploy all three strategies at the same time instead of prioritizing. And you can see that in the success factors. You know, they try to grow the business, but at the same time reducing the expenses. 
supporting the family was quite key. Uh, collaboration with external stakeholders, identifying new suppliers, but once again, as with other two, supporting the local communities by leveraging their firm's expertise. They also looked at de- developing new innovative products and services that were fit for purpose. So for this business, there was an immense amount of pressure and activity going on because they're deploying all three uh, strategies at, at the same time. Last but certainly not least is the family venture. This is, these are those companies that are led by a family CEO, small number of shareholders, generally in their first generation, not older than 30 years, and uh, you know, less in family employees. And their strategy was this exercising of patience was primary, followed by the business transformation. And and as Craig mentioned, we saw this a lot amongst the African and Middle Eastern uh, countries or regions where they weren't positive, but they were optimistic because of where they come from. And therefore, they exercised the patient to see what would happen because whatever action they took would have long-lasting effects. And this was the approach of the family venture but they were also able to quickly transform their business and take opportunities that were happening in the market. So if you look at their success factors, you know, the family is strongly embedded in the business. They're able to recognize the time to pivot, but also make tough decisions quickly because of the nature. But also fundamental, similar to the family corporation, was keeping the lines of communication open with all stakeholders. And that was fundamental in the success of the family ventures. So some of the key takeaways, you know, if you look at the initial shock, it was experienced by both family and non-family businesses. They had to quickly move to reduce the impact and the shock on the business by the sudden decline in revenue and in order for them to survive. But then when it came to the short term, the resilient DNA of the family business started to kick into action and they started to take financial and non-financial decisions. Things from a financial perspective, negotiating vendor contracts, cutting employees' pay, or in some cases having to reduce it. But on the non-financial side, what they aim to do is, you know, bringing more family members to support, but at the same time using those relationships that are built over a long time and engaging with customers, engaging with suppliers to make sure that they continue in business. And that was some of the key short-term focus areas. But the real success for the family businesses was the focus on the long term. And then not only on the not only on profits and dividends, but more about how do we protect and sustain the family for the future. And that focus on those three strategies. Number one being social responsibility and really maintaining their reputation as responsible owners for the employees and for the communities in which they operate. Then there was the option of the business transformation, where not only were they cutting costs, to make sure that they were leaner, but at the same time looking for opportunities in new markets, looking to introduce the next generation because of the digital transformation that were taking place and ensuring that transgenerational uh, entrepreneurship continued in order for the business and the family to survive. And lastly, the aspect of exercising patient capital, using that that had been created, knowing that they had to wait and see because whatever actions, as Kay has mentioned, would be taken would have long-lasting effects. So this focus on the long term was critical in enabling the family business to master the coming back, the comeback from the COVID pandemic uh, at the time. And this is a year ago. And there's some key lessons that have come out of that. But the one thing that was key and clear is that one size does not fit all. 
And still today, there's discussions being held on families in terms of assessing, you know, where do they diversify their business? How do they diversify their wealth? Which of the jurisdictions? The key aspect is in terms of their governance practices and processes and are they fit for purpose? And what do they need to do in terms of, number one, making sure that their corporate governance is right, but at the same time, the family governance. Do they have plans in place to put an emergency CEO in place? Who makes those decisions? And very importantly, the increased focus on their purpose and their values become paramount. I'm not going to go through all those questions but uh, and, and the points that I've been making, but the impact of COVID has allowed families to reassess and adapt and deploy, but at the core of it is their resilience. Um, but once again, depends on the size of the business, depends on the ownership structure, uh, depends on how many generations are involved in the business. So thanks very much for your time, uh, and we're happy to take any questions or comments, and I'll hand over to Prof. Enter. Thank you, Alan and Craig. Um, I think you will all agree with me. Excellent presentation, um, visually and otherwise, and some great insights. Um, if there's any questions, please post it to me on um, on the chat box, please. Uh, perhaps I can start, Ellen and Cray, because we will have a, a complete discussion in the next session. But I want to ask you, from your personal opinion, and from you have now worked internationally on the global um, report, as well as the one in Africa and also specifically in, Af- in South Africa, have you really found a big difference in terms of um, the family businesses looking after the employees, um, you know, taking on a softer approach to the business during COVID than would otherwise be the case. What was your experience? Perhaps, Ellen, we can start with you and then Craig. So, Elmer, I definitely saw family businesses making the decision, the tough decision of not paying dividends, as an example, right? To say, listen, the family can't, benefit from the business and getting dividends while we're retrenching employees. So the big focus was we're not going to pay dividends. We need to look after the business. We need to look after our staff and our employees, and we can't cut. So that was definitely, we saw that across the board, big and large, right? But unfortunately, at the same time, some businesses couldn't afford that. You know, some businesses had to cut at some point. Some took the executive pay. But interestingly enough, if you look at the survey from just on small businesses, not necessarily only family businesses, but small businesses, only 17% at the end of 2020 saw a reduction in revenue. And I think everyone was quite surprised how quickly in the, in the fourth quarter businesses were able to recover. And those that were able to look after the staff and retain the staff were able to take advantage of the changing market conditions. So I think... Those that were loyal, those that looked after, were able to benefit very quickly as, as the business unfolded and, and took a longer-term effect as opposed to immediate short-term. Craig, I don't know what your views on insights. No, no, very similar. I mean, um, tried their utmost to make sure that they could support the, the staff. I mean, in South Africa, we did have um, some tax governmental support that they did, and, and family business put a lot of money to make sure that they got that money out. What is very important is, especially in certain industries where there were hard lockdowns in terms of revenue went to zero, they continued to pay employees. And where they had to cut employee pay, they had long discussions and explained to them that when they do get to a better position, that they will still manage their dividend pays to try and catch up what they didn't pay them. And what, I mean, I had a discussion last week with them 
they've never seen their employee base as loyal as they have been since. They've seen a massive decline in their um, stock losses, which are attributed to stock walking off with employees previously. So they've seen, they've got the stats to show that the loyalty of the employees has, has gone up. And for them, that's just, um, yeah, um, they, the value in that is, is beyond. And another aspect, which is they had to make the call as well. It's one of those tough calls where some of the, the, the staff um, had to be on site, but then you've got some staff that don't need to be on site. But they made the decision that if a portion of the staff are going to be on site, everyone must be on site with protocols in place because that, again, creates that we're, we're – we're all one family at the end of the day in terms of an employee base as well. So that was also quite interesting um, that they took that hard decision to ask people to come on site with, but then have to spend money in terms of protocols to make sure to manage the health aspect. No, I agree with you 100%. And I perhaps just want to summarize some of the the key um, points that both of you made and Gray, I think you made a very important point, and we also saw that in the African barometer, and we could speak about that later on, the multidimensional nature of performance outcomes. And, um, you know, for me as an academic, I get so excited and passionate because um, I think for the first time, uh, we as a group um, together with you um, tested socio-emotional wealth. You know, and it may sound like an academic uh, theory, but it's so applicable to me. If I listen to everything the two of you say, it all comes back to that theory that says that, you know, success and um, performance outcomes include non-financial dimensions as much or even more as financial dimensions. And I think, um, Ellen, you and Cray also highlighted that in the report, you know, the importance of social responsibility. And uh, what you just said, Craig, the fact that um, you almost have more loyal uh, employees after COVID because you have made tough decisions and sacrificed dividends um, in, in, in with regard to retaining employees. And that comes back to the DNA of family businesses. Um, besides the long-term orientation, it comes back to the socio-emotional wealth, building strong relationships inside and outside of the business, uh, but also that reputation, you know, it's important in their DNA, in the personality to to maintain those relationships, even in terms of tough times. And um, as you will see, that's why family businesses outperform non-family businesses when it's tough economic times. So I can just everything that you're saying here from a practical point of view, you know, I can just find it all back to you know, the socio-emotional wealth theory and the importance of the unique nature of family businesses. And then the last comment that both of you made, uh, and I think specifically, Cray, you emphasized that, is the, is the importance of social, um, social capital, human capital, patient capital. And I think that comes a lot more natural again. Uh, it's part of the unique nature of family businesses, you know, to have uh, social capital, um, human capital, and and patient capital. I like that that term that that you use in the report as well. So I think um, what is wonderful for me, if you look to explain the insights, then you know um, there's a lot of common ground. And and thank you so so much. I don't know if uh, Titi or Nika still want to make a remark, 
And Ellen, um, if I perhaps can then um, start with you and Craig, if you can have the last say today then uh, for this session. is Ellen, what would you say uh, taking family businesses on the African continent forward in terms of what you have seen? You have now emphasized no one size fits all. What do you think? Uh, is there some two or three practical tips that you can give to um, the family businesses that's tuning in today? What what should they look out for? So, Amri, I think that each generation must learn from one another. I think the the experience of the senior generation to help the the younger generation to get through the fear and the crisis. Uh, that happened last year was critical, but at the same time, I think the second generation was able to help the senior generation embrace the digital transformation that has taken place, number one. And the other big thing I think that people mustn't underestimate is the importance of effective governance in their businesses, both within the family and organization, to, to see the business into the future and to long term. It's not a tick box approach. A, a, a appropriate culture of effective governance is so important and sticking to, in sticking to those rules and, and involving that and developing that is, is what will be the two comments. I'll give Craig some time to add some as well. Excellent. Thanks, Alan. You, I mean, you and I work together. <laughs> so, but I think maybe. I'm going to diffuse words. So for me, it's um, communication, it's planning, and ultimately, and, and I'm not punting us, but I'm saying just generally, when working amongst each other as family, there's going to be emotion. So you need an independent person to just help manage that emotion when you are planning and communicating. Um, and that's for me is, I'm just going to stop there because Ellen spoke to it as well. No, excellent. And um, I think that comes back to the title of your presentation, and that is, it's literally, there's no one size fits all, but it all comes back to communication, planning, and then also to latch on what we said this morning, Ellen, you just mentioned an appropriate culture, but I think an underlying very important issue uh, that was highlighted this morning is values and the shared vision and identity. And um, I think there's several speakers who's going to come back to values and how, how that's entrenched and um, transmitted, especially welcome in his presentation. So, uh, Ellen, also a very important point is embracing the digital transformation. And I think it was also referred to this morning that the next generation is on average more educated, you know, than the older generation and um, that's a very important point that you made, Alan, is that generations should work together. Instead of being competitive with each other, I think it's a, it should be a team approach and um, collaboration. So I really want to thank both of you from the bottom of my heart and also from the African Family Firms and the Nelson Mandela Family Business Unit. And I would really like to involve all the colleagues um, that's tuned in to join us for the next session. Uh, and then we're going to have a more detailed discussion on some of these insights uh, with uh, together with Tom McGuinness. So I hope I see you all back soon. Thank you so much, Ellen and Craig. Thanks, Henry. Thanks very much. No, thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.